you have to own your career. No one is going to do it for you. No one owes you anything. So, so if you want to do some of those things, don't be looking for who's going to give it to you. You have to own it yourself. Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Hello, and welcome to the Business Class Podcast. Today, I'm joined by 1982 UD School of Business Administration graduate Dan Griesmer. Dan currently serves as the Managing Director for Advisory Services at Charlestown Holdings, a capital markets and financial advisory firm. He's also the CEO of Griffin House Advisors, which provides advisory services and investment in the retail and cannabis industries. Prior to these roles, Dan was president and chief executive officer for multiple large companies in the retail industry, including Gymboree, Tilly's, and Coldwater Creek. That is a mouthful. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Dan. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'd like to start our journey with some questions about your experience in the C-suite and then work our way back to your time uh, and your experiences at the University of Dayton. Could you start by telling us a little bit more about your last CEO role at Gymboree? Sure. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, this was uh, an interesting, really, really interesting and challenging opportunity. The company went private, was taken private by a large uh, private equity firm in 2010, just as the, um, I, I, I attribute it largely to the Amazon effect, but consumer behaviors post Great Recession uh, began to change. And the, the, the privatization of the company and the debt that the company took on to go private in 2010 hamstringed its ability to respond to those changes and make investments necessary and, and, and as a result, the, the leadership of the company and ownership of the company allowed um, kind of de deferred investment and the aging of the fleet of stores and the, you know, kind of not keeping current with the changes that were taking place in retail in an effort to try to drive as much profit as possible. Um, and, and I knew that this company was in this state when I took the role. And I did it because it was an extraordinary challenge, um, a tremendous brand. Uh, and, and I knew that the company was going to file for bankruptcy. And it was, um, it was that challenge and the opportunity to, to turn around the business uh, and transform it in, in a way to, to really create a new and more compelling and relevant retail experience um, reposition the brand and the entire company for that matter. Uh, it was, uh, what is a billion, 200 million with, um, I think what, 12, 10, 10 to 12,000 employees at the time. Um, and, and what happened was the private equity firm, uh, when the company filed for bankruptcy, the private equity firm no longer owned the company and it was taken over by the debt holders that had loaned the firm, the money to take the company private. And what was tricky was that it was 16 uh, uh, private equity firms and hedge funds that, that had 
never really intended to own a retailer. They were simply <laughs> loaning money to um, uh, to this very large and prestigious um, private equity firm. And um, and I knew that I knew that was going to be a challenge. It was a big risk. Uh, I knew that also, uh, but it was one that I was willing to take. And so I I um, I took the position in May and commuted actually from my home here in Dana Point, California, up to the Bay Area, which is about as easy a commute as you could have. But it was a real challenge. Um, uh, because I knew I needed to be there full time. So this was not a phone in experience. This was not show up on Monday late afternoon and leave Thursday. It was a full time uh, commitment. And most of the people at the company didn't even know that I commuted because I was there on Sunday night and there late on Friday. Um, But it was an incredible experience. And one of the two probably peak performances uh, in my career of, of the team that I was leading. And it was extraordinary to take this company into bankruptcy um, and, and map out a, a strategy for emergence to manage that process and then uh, to, to do the hard work to reposition the brand and the customer experience across all touch points. And, and as, you know, as you can imagine, going to a company where the business has been so challenging, the lack of investment, the lack of resources, the team there, you know, just had this culture of failure. It was like, we're just, you know, we're doomed. So the, so the culture needed to be addressed first and foremost. And that was challenging, but also incredibly rewarding to watch the culture evolved from one of people, you know, I walked through the halls before anybody even knew what I was doing there. Um, And, you know, heads were down. No one was looking at each other. You'd go into the men's room and there'd be paper towels on the floor and, you know, offices were disheveled and those kind of things. It's just not a a great culture. Um, And so, so evolving that building the team and then mapping out a course to, to evolve the business was incredibly challenging, and it was extraordinary what the team accomplished in um, uh, about a year and a half. It was really remarkable. Dan, I want to I want to bookmark the your 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 commute. Uh, I want to come back to that one in, in a little bit. Okay. But, yeah, but you're sure. talking about the bankruptcy. So, did they file for bankruptcy before you became the CEO, or after you became the CEO? After I became the CEO, I, I so took that, the job knowing that was going to happen. Yeah, that feels like that might have been a, a the biggest of challenges. You come in as the new guy and then immediately file for bankruptcy. What, what was the challenge with your employees in, in that process? Well, um, you know, the, cha- the challenge was making meaning of what was going on in a way that everybody that uh, didn't just run for the doors. Right. So right. so it was important to um, make sure that and speak candidly about what was going on and what was going to happen um, in the process, but then, uh, you know, have paint a picture and and articulate the direction the company was going to go in and what the work that was going to happen in the future, um, what what that was going to look like and what 
the possible outcomes could be and, and really set a tone for this is the direction we're going to go and we're going to have a, a new lease on life and we're going to have, you know, uh, shed debt and we're going to have all kinds of things that are going to be in, incredibly rewarding uh, and positive uh, in a business that had really been starved for, um, wow, you know, it was seven, eight years it had been starved. So uh, it, that, was, that was, I thought, um, an important part to get the team to, to understand. I imagine it's quite different working for a publicly traded company versus working for a company that's owned by private equity. But, but then I would imagine it's even more difficult instead of having one private equity owner, I think you said you had 14. Uh, so yeah, 16. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was challenging. And, and that I, I didn't fully understand it as I took the job, what a challenge that would be. Um, I had had, you know, public company experience before. I had also had some private company experience, but this kind of 16 um, different firms, all with different agendas and different expectations and, you know, um, investors in every one of those 16 firms that had expectations and needs uh, so yeah, that was, that was a real challenge. There were three that were on the board, uh, but the other 13, um, were, actually controlled the majority of the company. So that was also challenging in the, in the ownership, ownership structure. So I, I believe before you went to, to Jimboree, you were, you were at Tilly's and from, from what I understand, it was a, almost the opposite situation where it was, it was a very growth oriented company during, during the period you were there. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was what uh, the experience that brought me to Southern California um, uh, and to Orange County. And it was, it was an opportunity um, to transform a business. I think that's the best word that I can use. Um, transform the business from a regional retailer uh, where the majority of the business was being done in the state of California and Arizona and, uh, uh, and a few other places. And maybe for the to, listeners that don't know yeah, about Tilly's, yeah. tell us a little bit more. What, what does Tilly's do? Oh, yeah, sure. Till, till, sorry, Tilly's is um, an action sports retailer um, targeting uh, kind of the, the older teen, a young adult um, with – um, apparel, accessories, footwear, and some hard goods, all oriented towards the action sports lifestyle, uh, which and, and Orange County is the epicenter of that lifestyle. So natural that the brand, that the business was located here, and the majority of the brands that the company sold and still sells are, are based here in, in Southern California. Um, and this was a company with I think at the time there was 115 or so stores, about 300 million in revenue. Um, and, and our charter was to transform the company from a private company to a public company. I was hired to take the company public and then lead it in a public environment. That's um, and it was exciting. It was a, it was a, a, an incredible process. And this is a company that had been led by a founder, uh, two founders, for 28 years prior in a 
in a in a private way, right? Obviously, they were a private company, and so all of the kind of governance and processes and everything needed to be brought up to a public company standard. Uh, at the same time, the business needed to evolve from being a regional business to a national business. And um, the, the, uh, from a stores-centric business, I think when I got there, the uh, e-commerce business was only 4% of the total. The majority was all, all stores. From a store-centric business to more of an omnichannel one, which is you know one that that uh, is is a, a modern execution across all touch points, uh, digital and mobile and uh, and you know ship from store, return to store, all the things that you want to do in an omni-channel environment, and then transform the customer experience from a product and brand standpoint to elevate all of the touch points, improve the website, launch a mobile app. Uh, elevate the brands, um, evolve the brands to ones that were more desirable at the time. Uh, so oh, that transformation focus um, was was really an amazing process, and 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 many of the things, most of the things, including the look and feel of the stores, and the overall structure of the business model, and the elevation of the of the brands and the product strategies are all ones they're executing with today. So it was a it was a great job that the team did there. Uh, you know, going, making all these transformations from private to public successfully and a highly successful IPO um, from regional to national um, and evolving the customer experience. So just toot your horn a little bit. What, what was the revenue when you started and what was the revenue when you left? 300 million when I started and 600 million when I left. So du doubled double. the company. That's and, awesome. Yeah. And, and e-commerce evolved um, to be uh, on a growing store base. It grew to about 14% of the total uh, in that time. Um, so yeah, it, it, the, the team did a great job. That's impressive. And so your, your first role as a CEO, I believe, came at, at Coldwater Creek, and where you held some other roles before um, ascending to the, to the top. Did, did you go to Coldwater with the expectation of becoming the CEO? Uh, I did, actually. That was one <laughs> of the reasons that I went there. Um, I, I, I had figured out um, very early in my life, um, even in at UD, in one of the, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get there, but in one of those experiences that I wanted to be a retail CEO. And once I figured that out, um, then I was willing to do a lot of things to make that happen. And the move from the Bay Area after 11 years uh, at Gap Inc. and an extraordinary run there where the company went from 3 billion to 12 billion and launched businesses like Old Navy. Um, it, 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 that was an incredible experience, but I wanted to I, I wanted to lead a retail business. And so I took this opportunity, knowing that I could make a, a, a significant impact on the business. And if I performed, I, I could be in a position uh, to take over the leadership role uh, as CEO. 
so yes, I, I, I moved the family up to Northern Idaho, a town of 7,000 people from the Bay Area, um, you know, dangling to my wife, the carrot that, yes, this is all going to be worth it. Trust me. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what was, what was the promotion path and how did you show that you were capable of leading the whole company? Yeah, I went, I went to, so this was a company when I got there was, uh, again, about 300 million, uh, almost entirely catalog sales. Um, targeting, it was a women's clothing company targeting uh, baby boomer women, uh, mostly apparel, uh, some accessories and some hard goods. And, and they did it through mailing, uh, 120 to 150 million catalogs a year. Um, it, it, this, the company wanted to expand into retail and, but didn't really have the, the skills internally to do that. And so I was hired to, to uh, grow, lead and grow the retail execution and help transform the company from a cataloger to a multi-channel retailer that could support uh, catalog, web and stores businesses. And so my first job there was senior vice president, uh, general manager of retail. Um, my next role was, uh, executive vice president sales and marketing. Uh, then I was promoted to president, um, and then promoted to CEO. Um, and the, that, that, those, the, that was like every couple of years, the, the promotions took place at the time, the company was growing ex uh, extremely quickly. Um, things were, were, we were rocking and rolling. The company um, got to, uh, from the 300 million when I got there to a billion two when I left, um, had gone from just a handful of stores to almost 400 and had transformed the business from being 95% uh, uh, catalog to 70% retail, 30 direct to customer through catalog and internet. And, um, and I, if I think back about to your question about, you know, how, how did I demonstrate um, the ability to be able to lead the company? Um, it all starts with, you got to execute, you got, you got to be able to deliver. And so, so, and I, I would, I would say that to anyone, um, you know, de deliver results, um, good things happen when you deliver results. And so it's, you got to execute, um, in this particular situation, I think, um, I, I, I was, I was able to lead with respect and I, I had a team, um, running the stores and large population in each one of the stores and growing it from a handful to 400. I had the majority of the employees at the company reporting to me anyway, um, and the ability to lead them successfully. And, you know, just to give you an idea that that company uh, delivered um, the top, it, well, how can I describe this? So, so they were recognized by the national retail Federation Foundation as having the one of the top 10 customer service uh, scores from their customers. And it improved 
We stayed in the top 10 and it improved every single year that I was there. Wow. So those are the kind of things that, you know, you can point to, to go, things are working and, and, you know, the company is headed in the right direction, but leading with respect, I think was a really critical, critical aspect of being able to demonstrate that I could do this. And I had, you know, it was respect for the, uh, I kind of formulated this respect for the customer, respect for the brand and respect for each other. We're kind of the leadership tenants that I employed as, as I was growing in my roles there. And um, that, that was very helpful. I think having and being able to lead through others and demonstrate that I could do that was also critical when you're in the CEO role, you're not actually doing anything, which may sound really weird, you know, I've, I, I remember telling my brother, who's an architect, and he says, so what do you do? And I said, well, I actually don't do anything, meaning I'm not producing reports. I'm not building buildings. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm leading. And so uh, um, it, it, it's, it's the ability to be able to do that through others um, and honing those skills. And whether it's a single individual early on in your career or uh, a, a large organization of people that you lead with hierarchies and team, you know, different levels, and all that, um, uh, being able to execute successfully through others. Uh, you have to be able to do that. And then I think the thoughtfulness with which decisions need to be approached when running a public company, when leading in a challenging environment, which the, what we didn't touch on here is that the, uh, I took over as CEO just as the Great Recession was <laughs> hitting. And um, I, mean, I can point back to it was a Tuesday, the second Tuesday in August of 2007 at about 3 p.m. that the customer that we targeted just stopped shopping. And it, and it literally was that dramatic of a cliff that the business fell off. And I was, uh, uh, I was, promoted into the leadership role right as that was happening. And we know what that did to the economy and to retail and to the baby boomer community. So it was a very, very challenging time. But the thoughtfulness with which decisions needed to be approached across the entire spectrum of the enterprise, um, there, there, there were no, you, you couldn't do anything without really thinking through the implications of those decisions. And so to your question, long-winded answer to your question, I, I would say it's probably those four things leading through others, but having great people um, and surrounding yourself with people that are way better than yourself at every discipline. Um, all of those things, I think, were the, were the things that contributed to that. I love that story. And I love that as a college student, you said, I want to be the CEO of a retail company. I think very few of our students have that, that kind of foresight today. And I don't, I don't fault them for that. I certainly did not have that uh, as a, as an undergraduate, but if we do have a few students who have that idea, you know, what would your advice be to them as to how do they, how do they start their career off and set themselves up on a, on a path to becoming a, a CEO? Well, yeah, that's, that's, I was, I was fortunate. Um, and I know most don't have that clarity uh, early in their career, and that's okay. That is perfectly okay. Absolutely. The, the principles, I think, 
apply whenever you have that clarity. Um, whenever that clarity strikes you, um, I, I would say that the first thing is you have to own your career. No one is going to do it for you. No one owes you anything. So, so if you want to do some of those things, don't be looking for who's going to give it to you. You have to own it yourself and, uh, and, and be willing to um, take responsibility for that and accountability for both the successes and the failures and um, not look to, to be a victim of anything or blame anyone. You own it. You own your career, the ups and the downs. Um, I think you got to be willing to take risks. And if I look at my career, I have taken a lot of risks. Some have paid off and some have not. And, um, but, but being able to continue to take risks and have the confidence in yourself that you can weather the downturns or the things that don't work out and take the learnings from them and, and incorporate them in the future uh, for future success is, is I think, um, uh, something that, that you, everyone should learn to do. Um, there, was a, there was an expression, and I, I wish I could remember who. It was a coach of some, somebody that used it, and it was crush it where you are. So aside from owning your career, the best advice, if you once you have the clarity of what you want to do and where you want to go, is just crush it where you are. Whatever you're doing, do it extraordinarily well. Um, and, and that will lead to the things that you want to have happen, happen. Um, and then the, the final piece is, and this is, this is specific to the CEO role is probably the, the need for life balance. And I, 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 the CEO role is a, is a hard one. It's a lonely one. Uh, I got I got that advice before I ever took the role, and I didn't understand it until I had <laughs> until I was in it, and I learned it is a very lonely position. And you know anybody who who either is a CEO understands that, but if you want to become a CEO, you won't understand it till you, you're there. But that's okay. Um, but it, it, the need for balance in your life, and when I say balance, you know I really mean your your spiritual, your physical, your uh, primary relationships, um, you know, your, your attitude, your overall health, those have all got to be in good shape in order to, to be successful in these roles. And if any one of them is out of balance, um, I think it makes it a lot harder. And so I, I spent a lot of time making sure that, um, that my primary relationship with my wife, who I've been married to for over 33 years, that that worked and that my relationship with my children was in a healthy place um, and that I was present when I was with them. Uh, I would get up and work out in the mornings um, at 5 a.m. I would be at, at the gym, 4.30, 5 a.m. at the gym in order to get a workout in before the house got up and before the kids were awake to have you know, and I could be back and showered and have breakfast with them before I would go off to work. Um, but staying healthy and, and, and in good shape was critical. Um, and having a, a, you know, a, 
a, a spiritual balance to your life. All I think all of those are critical in order to be successful in in that role because it's one thing to get it, but then you have to be successful at it. Yeah, you don't want to just get there, you right? Get there, right. and you want to and you want to succeed and flourish. Yep, right. So you just said a ton of things that 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 sparked my interest, um, and we'll dive into to just one of them. And it's something that I've heard from many of the individuals on this podcast uh, that are that are successful, and they talk about taking risks. And they talk about failing and you, you didn't necessarily say you failed, but you, you said there was some risks that you took that didn't pay off. Could you maybe share one of those with us? You know, what's a, what's a risk you took in your career and uh, what, what went wrong? And, and then how did you, how did you write the course? I, I made a decision in my career when I worked at the Gap um, to, to move from what was a merchandising capacity and role into um, the international division in order to get exposure to the rest of the value chain of a retail business. I had been a merchant. That's really where I am kind of the most comfortable, uh, focused on the customer experience, all the touch points of the customer experience from product and design to marketing and look and feel of everything. But, but I didn't, and I wasn't getting exposure to the, rest of a retail enterprise, um, strategy, finance, real estate, technology, uh, legal, HR, store operations, all that. I really wasn't getting those pieces of the business. And I knew I wanted to be a CEO. And so I made a decision to go into the international division, which ultimately limited my career at the gap. I could have done and been financially much more successful had I stayed in merchandising. Um, be, you would have been promoted quicker and gotten more. I would, have, I would have been promoted quicker. I would have, I would have been rewarded more uh, because it was a merchant-centric company. Yeah. But I would not have learned the things that I learned that positioned me to be the right person to take the opportunity at the next big move, which was to move to at Northern Idaho to work at Coldwater Creek to evolve and transform that business from a cataloger into a multi-channel retailer. I would never have had the skills to do that. So it felt like a bit of a failure while I was at, at the, in, in the international division. Yeah, you probably and had I friends and colleagues that stayed in merchandising that were, that were they, moving up to the ranks. And I was, I didn't understand half of what was going on at the company. It was filled with incredibly talented people. And I was, I felt like I was in over my head, but it ultimately, I learned a tremendous amount. And that was, that's, you know, the perspective was that it was a slog while I was there and I had accomplished a lot of great things, but it didn't feel as rewarding at the time. Now in retrospect, it, it, it was the right thing to do because it was a stepping stone to get me to my ultimate goal. That's great. Thank you. That, that's really, really good life lesson for, for our current students and our young alums to, to hear and, and think about. So let's go back to your time at, at UD. So you graduated in 1982. And you know, yeah. you and I spent some time together on on campus not too long ago, uh, but I imagine 
campus looked a lot different when you were recently here with me than it did when, when you were on campus. When you came back, what was what were the new additions that you found most appealing or what do you miss about the old campus? Um, yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I, I, um, I think the, the biggest thing that I noticed was just that there were so many more buildings. There, <laughs> there, there, was, there were so many more facilities um, and, and really great facilities. And, uh, you know, I, uh, that was a long time ago when I was at the University of Dayton, right? So what is it, 40 years um, years. So a lot changes. I, I, I wouldn't say I miss anything about what was there from a, from a physical standpoint. Um, it was a, it was a beautiful, somewhat sparse campus. And I wouldn't say that now, now it's a beautiful, um, more densely populated, interesting campus. Um, so I, I, I yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't miss anything. I was taken by how dramatic the just the overall physical appearance of the uh, it's almost like the school has grown up, which was uh, kind of an interesting viewpoint. Quite significantly. I mean, we're, we're now the, the largest private school in Ohio, which surprises a lot of people to learn that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So many alumni have a, a, a location, a house or a, an apartment or a, a dorm that, you know, when they think back that this is sort of w- what their home was, is there a place on campus that sort of speaks to you that you say that, you know, this is, this is where I lived when I was at UD? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, so, um, you know, I can't, I went to UD because I, I didn't have the funds to be able to go back East to a, to a school several schools that I had actually had track scholarships at and I didn't, I couldn't afford it. Um, and UD had a cooperative education program. And so I would work for four months and then go to school for four months and then work for four months and go to school for four months. And that would happen year round. Um, so there were times I had a very unusual experience, student experience at Dayton because uh, there were times when I was going full-time to school and it was in the middle of the summer and very few people were there. Very and then there was, t- and then there, yeah. And then I, it, either the fall or the spring semester, I might be working full time when everybody else is in, you know, full school mode. So it was an unusual um, experience. And I bounced around in uh, campus housing between campus housing and my, uh, my home, which was in Kettering, my, where my folks lived. Um, and I started, I think my first dorm uh, freshman year was Stewart. Uh, and then I, then I went to Founders and I lived uh, in Founders at the time on the same floor in the same wing with all the basketball players, which was kind of fun. I remember racing them down the hall uh, in Founders, <laughs> whatever. Um, they didn't know they were racing a track star, huh? Yeah, well, that, that was that, yeah, it was fun, and I didn't know I was racing people that were really fast. Um, so, uh, and then I went to Marycrest, and at Mary, I don't, I don't even know what Marycrest Crest, Crest was at the time. I mean, now, but at the time, it was an all-girls dorm, and we um, were the only floor 
or a portion of a floor that was the guys uh, because we were overflow. It was overflow. They didn't have enough space in the guys' dorms. And then I moved to a home uh, at 111 Lawnview. And um, that, if I had to point to it, that was really kind of the place where that was for two, two years, two consecutive years. And I was there year round. Um, and that was probably home in the University of Dayton. If you had uh, one meal on or near campus, where would you eat? So um, the, I, I can't answer just one. I would say there'd be three. And if, it, if I was living on my income when I was in college, it would be Milano's. Okay. And it would be the Milano's turkey and provolone um, for sure. Um, today, it would be the Pine Club. Right. Today would be the Pine Club. It's an amazing experience, but um, uh, certainly couldn't have done that then. The middle of the road would be Marion's Pizza. Okay. So Marion's had fond childhood memories of Marion's and then being back and so close to it um, when I was in school, uh, just just sensational. So it would be one of those three, but I'd have to go with Marion's if I had to choose. So thinking back to your, your time here um, on campus, are, are, there, are there courses or, or professors or, or maybe just in general, the Marianist charism? How did any of that have, a, have an impact or influence your, your life and your career? Um, yeah, I, I, that, that's interesting. Uh, the, the way I would summarize my response to that is that when I figured out what I wanted to do, and what I wanted to be. Um, and I was working for four months and then I'd go to school. And I was learning while I was working what I needed to make sure I knew. And so, so the, the things that I knew I was going to need, I focused heavily on those in my coursework. And I think I got A's in all of it. Like, because I knew I needed to know that and not so great on the other stuff. Okay. Cause I was working two jobs and I was just trying about, you know, so I, so I, I graduated and I got my degree and all that, but I knew I, there were things that I really needed to know. And most of those were around um, the business classes, the marketing um, marketing classes, obviously anything in retail um, were, were, really, really relevant to what I was doing and what I needed to know. There was one class called interpersonal communication that had nothing to do with any of that. But I, I, I have referred back to that class and my learnings in that class many times um, and, and enjoyed it. I don't recall the, the professor, but it was, it was something that I had used both personally and professionally ever since. Um, it, 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 but there's some, I think, leadership or, or kind of professional fundamentals that were developed at Dayton. Um, you know, if you think about the Marianist charism around uh, community uh, and mission, I think are the two most relevant that I have tapped into. And and around um, 
this culture of respect that I referred to earlier, um, demonstrating respect for everyone and that everyone is equal. Um, And even though I may have had uh, a different title than other individuals in the company, um, there was no more intrinsic value to me than anybody else. And so that kind of, um, uh, you know, community charism around we are all equal uh, it, it, it was was critical to kind of my leadership approach. And then um, the mission and the, you know, kind of compassionate capitalism approach of uh, uh, keeping all stakeholders in mind, customers, shareholders, employees, the community, and all levels of the community, those in need, uh, uh, most in need. Um, I think those were real critical aspects that, um, along with my Catholic upbringing, got fine-tuned at, at Dayton. So you you mentioned a couple of times the the job you had while you were in school, uh, where you you'd cycle on and work work for four months and come back. And if I remember correctly from our conversation when you were in Dayton, that that, that ended up being your first job when you when you graduated. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about you know what you were doing while you were in school and how that sort of led into to kickstarting your career? Sure. Um, so. So I worked, my first cooperative education work experience was with Reich's department store in downtown Dayton. And I think um, the store is gone now, but it's been replaced by, by some wonderful buildings. But, um, and I, I used to, at lunchtime, go over to the arcade, mm-hmm. which now, of course, is an amazing transformation that's taken place in that facility. Um, and and I was at federated department stores at a time when department stores had were at their peak of relevance in uh, re- the retail industry. So Rikes was part of federated. Rikes was part of federated. It was one of oh boy, I don't even know how many divisions there might have been sixteen. Um, over time, those have all consolidated now under the Macy's label, right? So the Macy's uh, brand. Um, so now, you know, my resume says I worked at Macy's, but at the time it was Reich's department store. Right. And I was spending um, time in various areas of the department store business. Uh, in a, uh, I think my very first one was in the buying office at the camera department um, of Reich's department store. And then my next one was... Um, the uh, um, I was the department manager of the women's handbag and accessories department. And that's where I saw the CEO of the department store walking through my department, talking about the business and things that were going on and, you know, what he was observing. And that's, that was where I saw this individual and said, Oh, I want to be that guy. Um, and it was, it was, uh, a, a really great, I kind of I describe it as it was my, you know, retail 101 ex- education that let me understand that, yes, I did, in fact, love retail. I had some um, passion for it and some ability. And that combination is really nice if you have skills and passion, right? That's your calling. 
Absolutely. Um, and, and so that's what I pursued. And so then I, um, it was natural that when I graduated from the University of Dayton, that, that the department store that I had worked for wanted to hire me. Um, and fortunately, I'd done a good enough job. They did want to hire me. And so I went to work for them and ended up working for um, Federated and survived multiple consolidations from Reichs to Shilato Reichs to the acquisition of Blocks to then Lazarus. Um, uh, survived all of those and then moved to the Gap um, uh, in California. But um, yeah, that was that was a it was a great great foundational education in retail. We're coming to the end, but I want to come back to it a little bit. And you gave me a little bit of a segue going back to the Bay Area. So you'd moved down to Southern California, and then you took the job um, back up in the Bay Area, and you needed to commute to, to Gymboree. And you've talked a lot about you know, work-life balance and, and, and all those things. How do you do that? When you, when you, what, what's the mileage? It, it's for, for those that aren't familiar with California, how far is it from Southern California up to the Bay Area? Oh, it's a, it's a seven to eight hour drive, but it's yeah. an hour, hour and 10 minute, 15 minute flight. So how do you, how do you do that? How do you commute? And essentially an eight hour drive, I'm sure you weren't driving it very often, but how do you, how do you no, do that uh, yeah. and, and maintain a work-life balance? Um, yeah. Um, well, um, you know, my, my, my life partner, uh, my wife has been supportive of moves and transitions that we have made in pursuit of career growth. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I moved her from Cincinnati to the Bay area and then from the Bay area up to Idaho and then from Idaho down to Southern California. So, so, you know, the career, she was supportive of the career and the role that the career had. The risk reward equation for this was a good one, uh, high risk, but high reward. Yeah. And so that was worth it um, as we discussed it. Um, and, and having her support was important, but I, I think only once I stopped commuting did I appreciate how challenging it was and how difficult it was for us to navigate. Yeah. Um, it, 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 once it was over, it was like, wow, what just happened? Um, but again, being present, I think, is so critical when you're, you know, when you're together or when you're home or when you're with your kids, you're present and you check out of the work thing. Um, which is harder to do with mobile devices and work from home and all those things. I totally understand that. But as being as present as you can is critical. But um, it was really the, 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 we knew it was either going to be a huge success or was not, and it was not um, an indefinite amount of time. So it was, it was worth it. How did, how did you functionally do that? You fly up Sunday night and had an apartment up there during the week and then flew home Friday night? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. I, 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 I set up an apartment there that was close to the office, um, less than a mile from in, in the city of San Francisco. 
uh, would fly up on Sunday. My wife and I would go have dinner and then she'd take me to the airport. Um, I'd fly up, be at work at 7 a.m. after having gone and worked out in the morning at 5 a.m. in order to do that um, and would stay as late as I need to because I was just going back to an empty apartment. So yeah. it was no big deal. And then I'd come back uh, late Friday afternoon uh, for the weekend. And that just continued you know, for, for the whole time I was there. Wow. That's, that's impressive that you were able to, to pull that off. When, when my wife and I met, she was uh, working for Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, and she lived just on the other side of the river in, in northern Kentucky. And so when we first started living together, I rented an apartment, I rented a room from a friend in their house. And, and I sort of did that. I would, I would go, um, being, a, being a professor, I had a little more flexible schedule. I would typically go Thursday night, go down to Cincinnati, stay with her for the weekend, drive back up here Monday morning. Uh, and then when I eventually moved full time, uh, to Cincinnati and, and we were first again in, in Northern Kentucky one, one, one evening, it took me four hours to get home. Most of you know the, the distance between Dayton and Cincinnati, it should be 45 minutes to an hour yeah. and yeah. Uh, just caught, caught that river traffic crossing the bridge. And, and she came home and I had a sizable glass of bourbon in my hand and she said something wrong. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm moving. Uh, <laughs> I hope, I hope you're coming with me, but I'm, I'm moving. I, I, I got to get on the other side of the river Thankfully, uh, she she'd seen enough good in me. She came with me, but uh, nice. commuting, commuting's tough. It's uh, it's hard, yeah, hard yeah, to do. It is. It is you know, very it, tough. It's, uh, I think today's world with with remote work and 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 all those kinds of things, it, it makes it uh, people are questioning their their commutes. But uh, you know, in person, there's still a good good sense of community we have here at UD. It's important that uh, you get that in person experiences. Totally agree. Well, Dan, we're coming to the end here. Is there is there anything else you would like to share with me, or any questions you have for me? You know, I, I, there there is a question. I'd love to get your take on something. Uh, what I more than the physical transformation that I have observed in the University of Dayton. To me, there, it, it, as I think about it, there has been this significant shift and transformation. In, let's see how I can describe this. When I was at the University of Dayton, I felt like the focus was more on the heritage and history of the university. And now I observe that the focus is more on how the university is being competitive and the future direction in the university. It's a it's pretty dramatic, right? From from yeah. my experience, it was all about the heritage heritage of the university, and now it seems to be all about the future. Can you um, share if you think that's correct, or wh what you think is leading to that, and what role you might have in that? That's a great question. I I would say I'm ill-equipped to provide the most accurate answer, but I will, I will give it a shot um, because I, I think that's probably, there was probably a slow transition, but I, I would say it, it's been more stark in probably the last 10 to 15 years. And I, and I think that's something that's impacted higher education across the country. And, and so right, right now, many institutions of higher education are, are facing what we often refer to as a, a demographic cliff in graduating high school students, right? So th they're, 
we're seeing fewer and fewer um, high school students who are interested in, in going to college. And so there's, there's just a lot more competition amongst and between universities and colleges to recruit students. And so thankfully at, at the university, I think we had some, some very um, prescient leaders that, that saw this coming uh, and anticipated this and started making changes well, well before the, the cliff was enacted, which, which puts us in a very good situation today. And, and you're seeing many smaller colleges closing or, or, or merging um, and they, they just can't, they can't keep up. Um, but we, like I said, we had, we had good leaders who made good decisions. You know, one of the, the part of the Marianist charism, they, they talk about reading the signs of the times. And, and I think we had, we had some leaders that did that. Um, so true to the Marianist roots, they, they read the signs of the times, they started making changes. We started recruiting uh, from, from diversifying our, our recruitment strategies uh, would be the, the short way to phrase it. But in today's world, you know, you saw tuition rising for decades in, into, in, in unsustainable ways. And in today's market, you know, where maybe 30, 40 years ago, if you were from a, a, Catholic, a Catholic high school, Catholic grade school system, you were looking at a Catholic university. And, and that was it. In today's world, because of tuition costs, everybody's looking at both. If you're looking at a, at a private Catholic school, you're also looking at a public school. And maybe that wasn't the case um, 30, 40 years ago. Now they are. And so they're comparing the price that they're going to get at UD with the price they're going to get at Ohio State or Cincinnati or, or Miami of Ohio. So, you know, we have the difficult challenge of we, we benchmark ourselves, we compare what we're doing with other private Catholic schools. You know, we, we, think, we think what we're doing here is comparable to what's happening at Notre Dame or Boston College or Georgetown. But in practice, we're competing with, with Ohio State and Cincinnati and Miami. And so our, we've got to somehow manage to have that, you know, that special experience the, that students are getting, you know, one-on-one -on -one attention, uh, close, close affiliation, close relationships with their faculty and staff. Um, but our price is competitive with what they can get at our competitor public schools. And so that, that's a challenge, but I think we are, we are rising to that challenge. And I, I think we're a, a really good size institution. We're sort of in that, in that middle ground where we're small enough that students are getting that attention from their faculty and staff. They, they know most of the students. They feel at home on this campus. They really feel that sense of community that you and other alumni talk about. But we're big enough to offer a breadth of different majors and programs and, and curricular and co-curricular opportunities, similar to what you might get at a big public school. So at a, at a small private, you, you have fewer opportunities. At a big public, your relationships are, are, are more difficult. You can get lost, and we're kind of right, right in the middle. So that, that, that's my best, <laughs> my best attempt at that answer, Dan. Thanks for ending with a, a really easy question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. A clear culture of excellence exists there. I hope so. We're, we're trying to make sure that UD, you know, while we're looking to the future, we're still trying to honor the past and, and make sure that, uh, you know, the, the degree for, for our, uh, our alums is, is worthwhile and, and recognized and relevant to, to what they're doing today. Right on. Well, Dan, I want to thank you for taking time to chat with me today. Uh, really, really enjoyed this conversation, really enjoyed getting to know you. I hope, uh, hope our listeners uh, enjoyed this as much, as much as I did. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
And, and thanks to our listeners. I hope you all will join us again next time on the Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers! Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, please follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.